Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Connie Ness Traveler. And we're here in the podcast studios with Barbara Peterson, who covers the airline industry for Traveler, Lale Arikaglu and Catherine Legrave, who are both editors for Traveler. My name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director for Traveler. And our topic this week is a more serious one than maybe we are usually talking about, which is how terrorism has affected the travel industry. You know, I was looking in preparation for this, I was looking for some global numbers and just to sort of get a sense of what the trends are like. And it's kind of difficult to come by because there's a lot of squishiness around what is defined as a terrorist incident around the world. So I don't know if there's an agreed upon standard that you guys have found that tracks these numbers that everybody kind of looks to or if it's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I usually tend to go by the Global Terrorism Database, which releases uh, numbers every year about terrorism attacks. But as far as defining the word, I think we were kind of having a conversation before we started about it being misused and sort of thrown around for any sort of attack that occurs. Who compiles the Global Terrorism Database? So it's a center at the University of Maryland. Okay. Yeah. So it's an academic. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a topic that's turned up in the news a lot recently in the last two and a half years or so. And there's a strong confluence between major tourism markets and terrorism in some of these incidents that have gotten the most attention. So we can walk through a couple of these. Um, In Paris, we had the Charlie Hebdo shooting. We had the Bataclan attacks back in 2015. And there's more to say about Paris, I think, in some news today that we can get to. We had the attack in Nice. Um, We had the attacks in London that, Lale, you've written about for us, both Westminster and the Borough Market and uh, London Bridge attacks, right? Yes. And then Manchester this year, and then Turkey in 2015 and 2016, and Ankara in Istanbul in 2016, four separate attacks that I could track down that made the news. And then if you go further back, places like Madrid and New York, London again, so all of these are major tourist markets, um, and all of them have been affected in recent years. And I was interested to see today, you know, we've written about this recently, that Paris last year suffered a decline in tourism, about 3 million visits, 2% compared to the year before. But France, more generally, still, it came out today, was the most popular tourist destination in 2016, even though it was down from the year before. And it still outranks the United States in terms of tourists. So clearly there's been an impact, and we know there's been an an economic impact, but people are still going to these places. I'm wondering for you guys, what are some of the changes that we've seen recently as a result of these attacks that have happened? I mean, I think one of the big ones is... Well, just the way that people are traveling, right? So you mentioned there's been a decline, but people are still going to these places. There are some statistics that show that if a significant tourist destination has a major tourist attack, it takes them about 13 months to recover to previous tourism levels than they were before the attack, which seems like a really long time. But actually, you know, this is information from the World Travel and Tourism Council, and it takes longer for a place to recover from, say, you know, a warning about disease or something that can be caught there, which is about 21 months. And they kind of said in their research that people may not go to that immediate place, but that they'll still go to the region, right? So instead of Barcelona, they're going to go to Lisbon. And that's kind of what we've seen a lot of interest in these sort of what a lot of people may initially think of like as secondary destinations in Europe and around the world. You know, you're sort of 
Budapest's your Lisbon. Not necessarily secondary, but not your biggest cities. Right. So there's a spillover effect yeah. that keeps regional tourism still active, but mm-hmm. it, maybe they're not going to those specific places anymore. Yeah. You know, Lale, you've got kind of a foot in both worlds. You've got family in London. You're from London, but you also have family in Istanbul. And you were talking a little bit about different reactions in those places. Yeah. So it's been interesting because obviously I grew up in London. My family are in London. My friends are in London. And watching the events unfold over the last few months, whether it was Westminster or Borough Market and London Bridge, you know, it was very horrible and surreal to be sat on the other side of the ocean, just watching that happen to a place that you love and that you call home. And then on the other side, when in 2016, there were a spate of very similar attacks in Istanbul, it was, you know, I, I've never lived there. I didn't grow up there. I have a different relationship to that city, but I have family there and I'll, I, my dad is Turkish, so I'll always have a connection to that place. And people's reactions when I say I'm going to both cities differ. You know, when I say I'm going home, even after these attacks, no one bats an eyelid. But if I say I'm going to Istanbul, like I actually have planned to in a few weeks, um, people sort of pull a face like, oh, is that a bit dangerous? Should you be doing that? And I mean, obviously, you know, they're very different places and very different countries, but it is strange to me that one city's trauma is seen in a very different light from another's. And there's a whole other podcast to get into about that. Yeah. Um, but personally, you know, if people ask me, like, how are my family's doing? Uh, fine. Like, their in day- each place. In each place. Their day to day is the absolute same. I mean, you know, you just. I mean, obviously, I don't want to belittle what happened. It's, it's horrifying, unspeakable, but everyone has, has to get on with their lives. And, this, you know, London is rolling along as usual. And if you look at Borough Market's Instagram, they're posting pictures of amazing food every day. And it's a mishmash of every sort of culture under the sun. And, you know, that's exactly what those attacks seek to end. And the only thing those cities can do is keep rolling on as they were before. You know, you wrote about that in the wake of the Borough Market attack for us, talking about and contextualizing the reaction of Londoners to that attack and to the Westminster attack with, you know, the history of terrorism in London and how people have responded to it. Do you feel like in these places there evolves a sort of resilience to these things, particularly facing the outside world? I think so. Um, You know, what was it, 2005, when there was another set of terror attacks in London, and I was there for that, and I was actually missed the one tube station by a couple of minutes, and got on the tube the next day. I mean, I think there is a sort of, not that it becomes a way of life, and it should not become a way of life, but I think people do build up a resilience to it, and I think it's, you can't be driven by fear, otherwise you won't do anything. And the more fearful you are, the more ignorant you'll become. And the only thing you can do is embrace different cultures and embrace different parts of your city and just keep going. Barbara, how has the industry reacted to these events? What kind of changes have we seen in the last few years? Well, if it's the airlines, um, I think that, you know, they would say... This is the new normal, and it's been that way for a long time. I think the industry has basically, at least in the airlines and the airports, which I cover closely, they've 
after, let's face it, a pretty difficult long period of adjustment, have gotten it down you know, to a point where at least we're, we're used to it. We expect this. We may complain about it. And, and as far as what goes on behind the scenes, I think that's what some people are very concerned about because um, it goes to this issue of, again, what is terrorism? I think if there's an attack or a planned attack on an airliner, it's pretty clear it's directly aimed at travelers. And unlike some of these other incidents, I shouldn't call them incidents, but, you know, these attacks, where it's not clear what the ultimate game is, you know, sometimes, you know, and one thing that will really spook travelers is if they think, okay, this is aimed directly at you, you know, you're, you're just going to be an idle bystander and you're there and you're a tourist, but they want to attack Americans or American planes or Western planes or whatever the end game is. So I think with recently with this, the laptop ban, which I think is the most recent incident where they mm -hmm. ratcheted up the security that we had sort of gotten used to and we're not thinking about so much, um, that seems to have sort of now faded. Uh, the, they've lifted the laptop bans. Oh, they um, have. I didn't yeah, know that. Yes, they have. And that's partly because you know, in this case, they were very specific about certain things have to be done. And we, um, once we, meaning the U.S., has, you know, feels confident that this added security, and they never, of course, give you any details about that, which is probably a good thing. But once that went into place from these countries that, you know, the, the seven Middle East countries that were affected, then they were going to lift it. And they did, in fact, lift it. And um, I don't think there was a lot of hoopla. There was certainly a lot more publicity when the ban was put in place than when it was sort of gradually kind of lifted on a case-by-case -case basis. But um, the point is, is that, you know, there is a reason for some of these things. And it's, it's probably a good thing that they're keeping people on their toes. There obviously are things that should be happening, you know, in terms of pre-screening passengers, doing a better job of screening um, luggage for, you know, especially carry-ons for bombs. And the critical thing here is they actually had intelligence that they were acting on. That they're, they're For was, the laptop ban. Well, yes. They, they, they believe that they had discovered a way, they meaning the terrorists had discovered a way to conceal plastic explosives in a laptop that would not be picked up by normal screening machinery. So that was the threat. But it looks like they're going ahead and doing what they should be doing. So I think that's kind of where it stands now. Just so people know, the screening that a checked bag gets is more detailed than the screening for carry-on luggage. Is that correct? Well, it's different. It's a better equipment. In other words, it's kind of like a CT scan you get at the hospital. But both of them are supposed to get the same level of sort of granular scrutiny. And, you know, that doesn't happen necessarily everywhere in the world. The right. problem we had was the sort of dichotomy here where the U.S. had spent, you know, and, you know, I don't know what the figure is now. It's like 70 billion and counting, you know, and, and on a lot of equipment and to get everything up to a certain standard here. And a lot of Western Europe is the same way. But we're talking about the whole world. I mean, the problem with the aviation system is all you need is just the weakest link to make a mistake. And then, you know, terrorists spend a lot of time figuring out where that weakest link is. And, you know, so it's a global network. And so I think that what's happening now is probably should have been happening a while ago, but at least it's happening now, that they're right. looking at it as a total system. Okay, how does someone look at it and figure out how to penetrate it? So, right. Right. But yes, in far as check bags, that was one of the pieces of the puzzle that took the longest to get up to speed because, you know, those machines are 
humongous. And they have to be really accurate because that would be a way to, you know, just check a bag and put something in it and, and uh, figure, you know, hey, they won't catch it. So I think the, that's been a huge, I don't know how many billions has been spent on that, but it looks like that is, in fact, now working out. And there was talk for a while of extending the laptop ban to countries outside of the United States, but it seems like that has died down. Well, that's still a possibility because there was this very vaguely worded um, bulletin from DHS, Department of Homeland Security, after this initial laptop ban, which just said, well, we're going to be looking at all of the countries in the world that have direct flights to the United States, which is something like 180 countries. And, and we want to make sure they're all up to speed. And they provided, again, no details. And they said if they found during audits that there were, you know, weaknesses that they would consider, you know, putting more restrictions on. And that could, of course, be something like the laptop ban. And then we had a period of time there where I think every week there was some report that the U.S. was about to ban devices all types of devices on all flights to the United States. And I remember that period, which is very un unsettling, because no one ever comes forward and explains what's going on. Um, but, but that's deliberate, right? They don't tell you what's going on because they want to keep a certain measure of security around what the intelligence is that they have, right? Yes. Or is it just incompetence? <laughs> well, it depends on whom you ask. I think that it is creating unnecessary alarm and insecurity among travelers. And I do feel like, I mean, it's not that we're asking them to disclose what's confidential, you know, or classified information, but I, I think that they could do a better job in, in cranking it down. And I, I travel in Western Europe all the time, and I don't see that kind of, you know, reactionary attitude. I don't know if the rest of you feel that way, but it's just, you know, I don't, I think that we're sort of uniquely, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, it just may be that the U.S. has always been a little bit like that. I mean, we're not, you know, when I traveled in Ireland this summer, um, a lot of people were saying, hey, you know, Ireland, we're used to terrorism. We had the IRA for, you know, decades. I mean, you know, that's... That was actually a point I kind of wanted to bring up as well, <laughs> is that before there were these attacks in London in the last, like, 10, 15 years, there was the IRA all across the UK for decades throughout, you know, even in my childhood and, you know, far more severely beforehand and people seem to have very short memories that actually large parts of the world have always had these problems and it unfortunately in a way like it isn't it isn't new it's just ever evolving I don't know if that's like a something to use to put into perspective or or keep things in perspective or I mean it, I think it's interesting too because I remember at a period of time during the IRA bombings in London trash cans had been removed from, yeah, that's from why there's London. no trash cans right. in the tube. Right, okay. And I was in um, Turin, which is, you know, somewhat of a tourist city, but not a big tourist city. Um, this was last year. And went to an event. I think it was around New Year's that I was there. And I went down to, uh, I think it was Piazza San Carlo, which is, you know, a big piazza in the center of town. And there's going to be a big music event and a New Year's celebration. And so lots of crowds were going to be down there. And they had put special trash cans and kind of removed, you know, sort of the ordinary trash cans from there. And it reminded me that city authorities, like destination authorities, I guess, are thinking about this stuff and have learned these lessons of history that we all forget. And they do seem to be putting them into action in, in some of these places and even in small markets like that, where I wouldn't have guessed people would be paranoid about 
you know, Turin, but there it was, you know, they were clearly taking these precautions. And I mean, I think they learn it and implement it quickly, right? After the Berlin Christmas market attack this year, I went to, I was in Germany at the time and I went to a Christmas market in Bruges days later and they had put up, you know, concrete barricades all around it. Yeah. So. The bad news spreads quickly, I guess. Right. But I mean, it's encouraging for people who are traveling that the institutions do learn and they do adapt pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've talked about this on our site and it's kind of what Lale was saying earlier is the goal of a lot of this is to strike fear, you know, and when that's successful is when people stop traveling. Um, because statistically, you're as likely to be struck by lightning in the U.S. as you are to be in a terrorism attack. I think more than three quarters of all terrorist attacks occur in six countries, which are Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, Syria, and Yemen. So as hard as it is to separate fact from fiction, I think it's important. It always helps me to sort of look at the numbers and the statistics and think about that. I found, to your point, I found this site that tracks, that was covered by Wired UK, um, that tracks terrorist incidents around the world. It's called Esri Story Maps. It's at storymaps.esri.com slash stories slash terrorist dash attacks, just in case anybody wants to go check it out. It is an interesting visual map, and it kind of bears out what you were talking about, Catherine, which is what constitutes um, right. an attack that we're actually going to pay attention to and think about within this context. They go day by day with attacks, and there are, by the way, there are attacks every day, most of them taking place in places like Syria or Iraq, Mosul or Baghdad, or you know, um, places that you might consider, if not war zones, then certainly conflict zones mm -hmm. of one kind or another. But there are also random small attacks that happen all over the world. And I pulled out a couple of these because I thought they were interesting. And it shows you how, number one, you can't really wrap your head around this. And so back again to your point, Catherine, like how much mental energy do you really need to expend on it and how much fear do you really need to have? Because some of this is very picking you. And so on August 5th, which is within the last week, I found an attack on the Esri Story Maps in Bloomington, Minnesota. That was, and again, we think of, you know, I think in the, in the, in the sort of media landscape, the sort of prominent media landscape, you think of these as being ISIS or some other major group, but here's some group of right-wing extremists suspected in Bloomington, Minnesota, who set off explosives outside of a mosque in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And the state's governor confirmed that it was a criminal act of terrorism. So something that didn't make the news, that didn't get presented, and is very local and small scale, but I don't think people are thinking about Bloomington, Minnesota as a place they might have to worry about terrorism if they are headed to Bloomington, Minnesota. But then also... In France, there, and we've seen this in New York too, we've seen a bunch of these very small scale, we call them lone wolf attacks, where there was a guy also on August 5th, so same day, a man held by police after he tried to force his way into the Eiffel Tower, and the Eiffel Tower actually got shut down as a result of this guy trying to sneak his way on. And we've seen this in New York, we've seen um, people with hammers attacking policemen, we've seen sort of random small scale attacks that are classified as terrorist incidents, but it's not clear to me whether they constitute you know, the kinds of attacks that people are paying attention to when they're evaluating the global terrorism and tourism sort of intersections. 
Yeah, well, that's very interesting because I think, you know, the stereotypical, you know, terrorist act, I think that we see both in popular media and, you know, just through our own history, it's just been part of a larger plot. You know, it's an attack on a state. It's an attack on a way of life. And it's interesting, too, because I was looking back in preparation for this over all the attacks that occurred on airlines. And, you know, we're going way back. If you really look at when it really all started, you know, it was even before the 1970s. And I'm not talking even about the cliche of, you know, take me to Cuba, you know, the, the, cl- the classic thing. That's what started, you know, actually the first metal detectors were installed. In, oh, no, tell me in, this. I want to know yeah. this. I've always wondered this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it was during the Nixon administration, actually. And there were <laughs> so many reasons for that. <laughs> yeah. And it was because, yeah, there was these people who would just get on a plane and with a gun there because anybody could walk onto a plane with anything at that point. Nobody And for some reason wanted to go to Cuba. So, I mean, it was almost a punchline, you know, they take me to Cuba, get on the, you know, and, and so a number of planes were hijacked, many more planes than... To go to Cuba? Have, yes. So Cuba was like the terrorist <laughs> destination du jour? <laughs> exactly. Again, statistically, I think there were more terrorist attacks in the 70s and 80s in the West than there are. I mean, largely yeah. because of this hijacking that you're talking about, Barbara. Yes, well, Yeah, exactly. the Red Brigades yeah. in yeah. Italy, you had Bader Meinhof in, uh, in Germany. Germany, you had all of these sort of yeah. like organized movements. So we think that now we're all so focused on, but it, no, it was a, a huge deal. And it, it was also much more aimed at travelers and tourism. That's and, true. And yeah. at least that was the collateral damage, you know, I mean, I mean, they, you know, so, um, so that was when the first metal detectors were installed. And, and then every decade, it seemed there was a rash of other attacks that would then lead to other things. And then interestingly, one, one thing which turned out not to be terrorism, but they didn't know it for a long time was TWA 800. Oh, right. Um, so that's when they first started things like, you know, the fact that you had to have your ID match the name on your ticket, you know, that was not the case until the nineties that they, you know, I mean, you know, in fact, there was a great little black market thing going on, but people selling their tickets to somebody else, and because it's the like airline. scalping for airlines, yeah. right? StubHub, yeah, yeah StubHub yeah. for airlines. So that took care of that. So yes, yeah, so it's it was just sort of incremental, and the fact that your luggage had to be on the plane that you got on, that was not a requirement until after Pan Am 103, which was 1988, late 1988, and you know that's when they figured that someone had checked a bag in with a bomb in it with a timer and, and had, did not get on the yeah, plane not did not get on that final leg out of london so it's not anything new and airlines have been a preferred target for as long as we've practically you know had aviation i mean so you know and you can understand the reasons why i mean you have an interesting piece on our site about this about how airports have changed their security because of you know, it's sort of a, a fine line between whose jurisdiction it is. Like in the baggage claim, you know, it's not necessarily the airline's responsibility anymore. It's the local police. I think you wrote about this when we And had, where does the TSA you know, f- yeah. factor into all of that? Well, that's actually a very good question because, you know, we had those incidents uh, last year. Remember where there were some panics that were set off at airports where it turned out there was nothing going on. I mean, they, so some people were cheering at, at a soccer match or something and, and, and people freaked out and thought there was a gunman. At, and I think that was at JFK. Yeah. And the TSA officers said, 
oh, I, we don't know what's going on. We can't do anything. And I think people were kind of shocked at that. Like, wait, what, what are you doing? You're, you're supposed to be responsible for airport security. And you're, But again, like that case where the, I think it was, was it Fort, Fort Lauderdale? Lauderdale? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the guy got out and started a shooting spree in the um, baggage area. Yeah. That was technically in the jurisdiction of the local police in that city. And was uh, that classified as a terrorist incident? People were calling it that, and and that or just an active shooter kind of thing. Like you know what I mean? Like it does feel like there's a blurry, there's a blurry line, and 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 it's not even clear to me. And if you look at this database that I was talking about, it it does feel like perceived motivation is part of the definition. It seems like there has to be some political component, you know, before they'll call it a terrorist incident. Well, I would. I would think so. I would hope so. But, you know, that case in Fort Lauderdale is an excellent example because it happened at an airport. There's an assumption that anything that happens anywhere near an airplane is terrorism. And, you know, maybe we need to re-examine that. I mean, you know, if you have some person, you know, who sadly is just kind of a nut job, you know, with a gun. I mean, you know, is that, <laughs> is that the technical? That's the technical <laughs> term. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make well, light like, of it. No, but we have these. We have these. This doesn't yeah. really happen as much yeah. anymore, and I don't. I don't really know why. I guess this is a podcast for a, a different magazine. But you know, there used to be these incidents of disgruntled ex-employees or people who'd been fired, who would then return to the workplace and sort of wreak havoc and take their revenge or their anger out. And it seems as though if that happened at an airport, they would classify that as a terrorist incident, but it doesn't really seem like it's qualitatively the same thing. Exactly. There were several incidents at um, LAX airport where the actual TSA security checkpoint was the target of it. And in one of those cases, it was someone who was a disgruntled employee. And the response of the TSA union, you know, the the union that represents the screeners, was that, oh, well, maybe we should consider letting TSA screeners carry guns. And that drew a lot of pushback because... Seems that would have kept the guy from having to go home and he could have just, like, gone right for... I I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I, I know that they would argue, look, we are also now targets, and that's maybe the case. But the point is, is that... I think most people believe, at least I as a traveler, would say, I don't think we need any more guns in airports. And, uh, you know, that's not going down in the right direction. But I'm saying that's the atmosphere. If it's at an airport, it involves anything to do with travel, it is immediately going to just, you know, they'll slap the terrorism label on it, whether or not that's fair. I found a definition. Oh. Read it. Okay. To your point, Barbara. This is from the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. So it kind of... It's a very fruitful Google search. (laughs) I know how to Google. Death penalty? Um, How did that get involved with this? So this is basically what acts and crimes fall under the federal definition of terrorism. So start quote, is calculated to influence or affect the conduct of government by intimidation or coercion or to retaliate against government conduct. There's a lot more, but that's the gist of it. Okay, so mad at your former boss doesn't qualify right? unless it's in an airport, Yeah, which is kind of what Barbara's getting at. Or, I mean, I think we've entered this tricky zone, you know, if you're declaring allegiance to a terrorist group, but the act isn't necessarily falling under these guidelines, where does that leave you? Right. You know? So for travelers, this is an ever-shifting landscape. It's hard to know exactly where 
the government stands, where the world stands, um, the State Department. Catherine, what do the State Department guidelines offer in terms of classifications of different places? How can people research this? Sure. So, you know, we have a lot of these stories on our sites, travel warning, travel alerts, and we, we get a lot of these questions. What's the difference between the two? And generally, according to the State Department, a travel warning is sort of broad reaching, right? This is considering very carefully if you should go to this region at all. Um, travel warnings are usually from longer term things, right? Unstable governance. So they're not really sort of one-off events. Travel alerts are usually, you know, about these one-off events that we've discussed. So there could be a strike, a demonstration, a health alert. These would all be things that would be classified under travel alerts. And another question we get is, should I cancel my trip? Oftentimes travel warnings are about specific areas of the country and not necessarily about the country as a whole. So they're saying, you know, look, this area of the country, this has been happening um, for U.S. travelers trying to avoid this area, but the rest of the country is totally safe. And I think, as you were saying earlier about how you rely a lot on statistics and Mm -hmm. data as a source of information and also maybe like comfort and just put things in perspective. And I think whether you're deciding to cancel your or can go right. on your trip, like kind of use your own judgment, like take take note of these warnings or alerts and do some research. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, like also, if you don't feel comfortable going to that place, like if you're gonna have a bad time, right. then don't go, don't make yourself go. But I think it's really all to do down to the person and, and, and your own judgment and assessment of the situation to a point. I mean, that seems indisputable in the sense that if you're not comfortable, you're not going to have a good time. It's probably not a good idea to go on the trip. But by the same token, I do think, Barbara, you pointed out earlier that we're sitting right now in proximity to one of the most massive and influential terrorist incidents in the history of, you know, the modern era, right? And I think it's interesting to note, and it refers again to what Lale was saying about London, which is that not only has Lower Manhattan kind of recovered from that in a sense, and in a sense you never recover from that, and we are reminded of it every day, but in another sense, this has become a thriving part of the city and it has become a tourist destination, and it's not only because of that historical event. It's also because there are new businesses that have opened up down here. There are restaurants, there are destinations, there is a museum that is, yes, devoted to that particular incident, but we've seen in the past few years since we've been down here, since our offices have moved down here, a sort of flourishing of this particular location. And New York in general has been one of the most attacked cities, if you want to look at it that way, which is a very negative way Mm -hmm. of looking at it. But it's also been one of the most resilient and kind of resurgent. I think you could say the same thing about London. You could say the same thing about Madrid. Um, These are places that have actually seen over the course of time you know, visitation increase rather than decrease. There may be temporary decreases, but it does feel like the real message to people would be, yes, your own comfort level is the most important thing because there's no point in going someplace if you can't enjoy it. But really step back and sort of look at the bigger picture and assess the, the sort of situation from a rational perspective, which is the chances of something happening while you're there in that particular place. You know, even these kind of like more frequent, smaller scale lone wolf events 
tend to not, I don't feel like there are people in New York running around worrying about guys with hammers. I mean, any more than we did before. I worry about a thousand other things before I worry about that in my day to day. I mean, there are guys with hammers running around all over the place. In New I York. worry more <laughs> about whether the MTA is just going to implode <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Am I actually, go- is the subway actually <laughs> going to leave yeah. the tunnel in which I'm yeah. sitting? Will the subway kill me is kind of what I'm worried about at this yeah. point. I don't worry about that in London, mm-hmm. by the way. I don't know. There's no AC, and in the middle of the summer, oh it's dear, pretty terrible. I guess I went. <laughs> I went in December. It was pretty easy. But I think what I was trying to get out earlier is that, like, I completely agree that you should approach this from you know a rational perspective, and I would encourage everyone to travel to Europe right now. I would. I wouldn't tell anyone not to go being someone who's from there who has family there who's going there in a few weeks you should not be deterred but at the same time like I don't want to shame anyone for being yeah scared to travel somewhere like if you just don't want to do it then you shouldn't yeah but at the same time like you know don't just just don't just don't close off these experiences exactly these are great places to visit and I, I also think to Barbara's point you know, airport security and airline security has actually become incredibly tight. And and uh, the last few flights that I've taken, I've gone through the full body screening thing. And I feel like we've even gotten over our anxiety about whatever it is that they're looking at there. Like, you know, like, okay, fine. You want to look at me naked? That's cool too. Like, I don't care. <laughs> um, but, you, but, you know, it's gotten pretty rigorous and even, and they do sort of every now and then kind of change the rules a little bit, but that's okay. I feel like people have gotten used to that. It's like, okay, now I have to take my iPad out too. Fine. I'll take my mm-hmm. iPad out. I'll take my shoes off. I'll take my belt off. And whatever. your food now and your books. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. The, well, I think that's the issue now. I mean, you know, the phrase security theater, of course, you know, came into being after 9-11. And of course, it, a lot of it was exactly that and still is. I think if they can make it efficient, you know, we can put up with it as long as we don't feel like it's totally gone, you know, too far in that direction. So they are getting a lot better at that. This is my one little, you know, public service announcement here. More people should sign up for TSA PreCheck because, oh my God, you know, we all are probably part of it. It's just amazing. It's kind of unfortunate, though, that it has to be sort of set up that way where there's the haves and the have-nots, but anybody who travels at all should be in it. But I think even for the non-PreCheck people, it's moving a lot more efficiently. When you um, mentioned the sort of the theatre and the chaos of TSA, it reminded me of a story from a few weeks ago when there was, I can't remember exactly where it was in the States, but there'd been a comics convention and... Oh, yeah, yeah Comic-Con. Yeah. yeah. Was it San Diego? That really, or that really Diego, famous yeah. one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Come on, Lale. Lale. <laughs> there are people on the team who are going to be really upset with you for this. Seb's crying somewhere yes. in the building. Yes. And when a bunch of you know, the attendees were flying back to, you know, various places across the States. TSA were confiscating their... They wouldn't United, let them check United, their comics, They right? wouldn't let them check yeah. their comics. United, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> Calling out United. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Call them out. I think there was confusion about the rules, so I just... Want to well, and I was going to say, there was a confusion about the rules, and is that something that's happening more, that there's just at different airports and different TSA lines, like, no one quite knows what you have to take out of your bag, what you can check, like... 
Yes. Well, I think that's, again, I think that's been the case ever since there has been a TSA. I mean, there's just, you know, so, uh, it's not anything new, believe me. I mean, you know, I, I know I've mentioned this before on other podcasts, but I did an investigation, I should say, for this magazine and, and worked as a security screener for a few months at LaGuardia Airport. So, yeah. and That and, is taking one for the team. Yeah. <laughs> that is really taking one for the team. And it was interesting timing. I couldn't have known this when I started the process, but that uh, when my first day on the job was the day that they had started the new liquids rules, you know, and which was a response to something that happened in London, and you know, then the plot that was foiled. So, but the issue of do they make these things up on the spot? That's always a concern because different screeners can respond in different ways to what they think are the rules, and it's you know, it's how much training. license do they have? Um, quite a bit more than people suppose, but. If you go too far, you can get fired. So, I mean, I mean, there's a fine line there, too. You know, there's a standard operating procedure. There's a whole manual devoted to the SOP, and which is a huge tome. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's just, again, it's, it's sometimes you have to use your own judgment. And, you know, not everybody's judgment is that great. So, And then there's a whole process for protesting and appealing if you feel you've been mistreated, if they've done something they shouldn't, if they confiscated something. So, But I remember when I worked on the, at the checkpoint, the whole issue was all the stuff that we were confiscating because people just had no clue. So they'd show up. I mean, the one I felt really bad about was this couple going off on their anniversary trip, and they had all this wonderful like champagne with them it was like vintage champagne. Well, that isn't where i thought you were going with <laughs> yeah. this, but, but i'm glad it is <laughs> okay i'm glad we got a laugh but you know you bring up yeah. airport security and i'm just curious um to know about what travelers can if they do feel this sort of unease that lala is talking about or if they're going somewhere or they're just worried about terrorism in general what can they do before their trip to sort of feel better or be safe. You know, one of my favorite features is the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program, which is a free service from the State Department where you can enroll, just put where you're going, and then get alerts or warnings about that region. So kind of staying up to date. So I'm wondering if there are like any other tips. It's like hit list for terrorism. Yeah. Well, it's a personal thing, right? So if I say I'm going to Berlin, I'm going to Munich, um, and it can also, you know, be a good source for your family if you're abroad during an attack, you know, they can sort of know where you are and that can all be connected. So I'm wondering if you guys have any other things that you like to do or any other tips. I read a lot. I read read a lot and I try to learn as much as I can about the place I'm going to. Yeah. Which you should do wherever you're traveling. Well, I would also say check other countries' uh, warnings too. You know, we're not the only country in the world that That's issues. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, because there has been criticism, and some of it quite fair, that some of these State Department warnings are politically motivated, and so check what the UK says to their citizens. Exactly. Are they telling yeah, that's you a good to avoid? Point. Yeah, and and check what some other countries and, are. That, and to put things in perspective again. There are countries that are also placing alerts and warnings on the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was thinking about that. When oh, we we've written it. about that. We, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I brought it up in a podcast before. But Please do, <laughs> such as um, who's, got, who's got alerts for us? But but Catherine, I think to your point, I mean, you know, one thing I always Barbara does not in, care. <laughs> no, I I I think that. What I like to look at is what the travel insurance companies, look at what their insurance policy says, because they're only going to let you get out of your insurance. Well, in other words, you know, collect on. So let's say you cancel your trip because you're nervous. 
I'm always interested to see what they say the benchmark is, because I think that's kind of a good mm -hmm. reality check there. Well, yeah, look into travel insurance. We have a quote from someone from travelinsurance.com who told us that travel insurance queries usually spike um, after attacks, obviously, and normalize after one to two weeks. And on their site, after the Brussels attack, traffic rose 25%, Istanbul 27%. So, you know, this is another thing. If you're concerned about that, look into travel insurance or travel insurance policy. But again, my personal opinion is don't stop traveling. Right. I think that's all of our. Yeah. I mean, travel is. insurance is a good idea for yeah. a number of reasons. Sure. Right. Like all kinds of things can happen and, and it gives you a safety net for those things. And there's probably a whole host of things that are more likely to happen. Yeah. Before. I think it's like a vending machine falling on you is more likely. <laughs> not even not even joking. That's a, a real thing. It's terrifying. Sounds like you're then joking and now I'm scared of vending no, machines. No, no, <laughs> Then being killed in a terrorist attack. Like I Another said earlier, ruined. Like, like I said. Especially in Tokyo. My God, there are vending machines everywhere. It's kind of That's terrifying. That's true. I don't know about how your odds change when you're in a city with more vending machines. Um, Does it depend on what's in yeah. the vending machines? But like I said earlier, lightning. You know, last year in the U.S., I think 44, 45 people were killed in what were classified as terrorist attacks, um, which is about the same as the number of people who died by being struck by lightning. I, there's also things like, in terms of what consumers can use, there's also, just to remind everyone, Facebook's safety check. Right, yep. And there's um, a Google product that got released last year that's called Trusted Contacts, and those are ways for you to let people know that you're fine should something go down when you're in one of these places. And again, when you're in a big city like London or New York or Istanbul or Paris, you know, something happening on the other side of the city from where you are, something happening in the 10th arrondissement or something happening in a part of Manhattan that you are not at that moment can feel very far away, but it doesn't to people who are loved ones or, or family or whatever. Um, and they see something happening in New York and they want to know that you're safe. So those are good tools to do that. Yeah, we also have a piece on our site about what to do if you're abroad during an attack, and it talks about stuff to do post-attack, during an attack, and before. And one of the tips I like is just a good travel tip in general is to have all of your like confirmation codes, passport numbers. Passport number you should probably have memorized, but confirmation codes. Um, that was a shaming changed. moment. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know mine. <laughs> Quick, let's all recite ours. Not, and then not, everybody can. No. Yeah. And, then, and then your that social security. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Middle name, please. <laughs> Birthday. I'm just interested to know how you guys feel about this, but you know, thinking about big cities like Paris and how landmarks and huge tourist attractions like the Eiffel mm. Tower have sort of somewhat become fortresses in a way. You know, it takes even longer to go up there because mm. you have to clear security screening. And, you know, how much are you guys like deterred from visiting? Even if you're not deterred from visiting a particular destination, are you wary about going to certain tourist attractions? Does it make you nervous? I almost feel like security has been heightened. So it makes me feel, I mean, it's not, again, a big concern of mine, but I would almost feel, I think bigger cities have heightened awareness right that's just sort of the reality that we live in yeah, yeah. i found myself um experiencing fear at certain like large crowded events but the fear has been more about you know just like stampedes or crowd control not being managed by the police very well um so like new year's eve or things where you've just got huge numbers of people often you know intoxicated or whatever partying and 
I don't find myself, I find myself deterred by crowds, but not because of safety reasons, more because of like just impatience and insecurity. And there are like restaurants in New York, like the Spotted Pig on a Friday or Saturday, where I'm <laughs> way more intimidated by the crowd than I would be at like the Eiffel Tower or again here in our offices, you know, people going up to see the top of the World Trade Center, you know, there are these huge lines and so forth. And it's inconvenient, but it doesn't feel like a safety it doesn't register for me as a safety issue yeah i think again you know if the local police or the local authorities in the city have determined that that's the way to go then yeah just you know you go with it yes i mean i remember the first time i saw the metal detectors at the met museum i thought oh my god what really this the met museum give me a break but <laughs> um but now it's just okay you know you're used to it it's just like going to the coat checkers it's very easy you know they just so i don't know i mean maybe it's just that we are now much more used to it you know i remember after 9 11 that the sort of mantra among a lot of commentators was well this is the u.s's sort of big moment of awakening you know this is when you finally get to understand what the rest of the world has to deal with you know so there was this attitude i think which is well-founded that we had been living in a bit of a bubble you know it hadn't happened on our soil and so you know we're now a lot more used to it and i think again just back to what i said about airport security as long as it isn't becoming so onerous you know that it's really just over the top and it's affecting your ability to get anything out of this i mean then i think it's unfortunately it's here to stay i'm curious about your perspective on one thing barbara which is you know we hear Whenever the subject of airport security comes up and screenings and machines mm -hmm. and things like that, we always hear that from some quarters, I should say, we hear that there is a better way, that there is, for example, um, in the Israeli airports, the approach that they take to screening is much less technology focused and much more human focused, right? And focus on reading people and trying to spot people rather than things in people's stuff, do you have a point of view on how that stands and, and whether we in the United States, for example, should be taking a different philosophical approach to airport security than the sort of technology-focused approach that we do take? We tried to, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a very good point. And yes, I do think so. But here's the issue, is that right after 9-11, I remember anybody who had ever had anything to do with Israeli security was suddenly the hottest ticket in town, you know, because it's like, we need to learn from you guys. But the difference is we're a huge country. Mm -hmm. We have a huge domestic airline system. They are a very small country that has been at war for its whole existence. So you can't even compare them at all. So it's a scale problem. Yes. You can't scale that kind of approach but, to... Exactly. And it is definitely a smarter approach. But here's what I'd say about that. I think that after being very ham-handed and just, you know, making every mistake possible, I think now it's moving a little bit more towards a more nimble approach. And that's really what it has to be. It's never going to be approaching that. Technology can only go so far. But I actually do think, though, in a funny way, and this is actually also coming from Israel right now, a lot of the best technology that could really help make things more efficient and more accurate is coming from uh, overseas. Biometric identification, which I think maybe a decade ago, a lot of people would have, you know, you know they would have gotten a lot of pushback. It's now becoming much more the norm because after all, you know, on your smartphone and everything, you know, you... I was going to say, mean, do you feel like that's helped people accept biometrics? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of airlines are sort of 
quietly or maybe not so quietly in these <laughs> days, uh, just experimenting with it, testing, you know, things like fingerprints, um, iris recognition. Iris have you, have any of yeah, you guys yeah. done clear? Barbara. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so yeah. clear does that stuff, yes, right? Exactly. Uses fingerprints and uh, Barbara will use is a, a clear thing. acolyte. <laughs> well, they were around before pre-check even. I mean, they were one of the early innovators and then but they're a private sector company and they kind of ran into this government wall of well, you know, we have to control everything. But I think ultimately they will be smarter about this. And, you know, instead of making us all sit there and take out our baggie with, you know, the just, you know, that's and take off our shoes. I mean, why why are we still doing that? I don't understand at all. But anyway, um, from a technological perspective, you don't understand. I mean, the machines can can sort of suss that out. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and and yeah. it wouldn't make any sense that TSA PreCheck would let you keep your shoes. That's the thing that I always think about TSA PreCheck is like, I can keep my shoes on over on that side of the line, but over here I can't <laughs> keep my shoes on. Like what, you know, I know there's a process for TSA PreCheck and everything, but I don't know how deep it yeah. goes. Well, that goes back to the idea that we're always fighting the last war. We're always fighting the, la you know, whatever the last sure. terrorist attack was that almost succeeded, you know, like the infamous shoe bomber. And that's, of course, or the water thing, Precise. the liquids. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I guess we've given our final words. Go ahead and go unless you feel personally uncomfortable and check out all these resources in order to make yourself feel safer. Right. Yes, go, go. Keep traveling. Do go. Yes. <laughs> okay. Do subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com where you can read about uh, these subjects and many other things and these techniques and many other things. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us. Many people have been doing that. It's been very interesting, and we try to be helpful when we can either by tweeting back to you or we will set up your very own podcast to answer your question. And do review us on iTunes. We read those as well. Uh, Barbara, how can people get in touch with you? On Twitter, it's at Peterson B. Peterson underscore B, Peterson B. No, yeah, yeah. no space, no, no underscore. Yeah, just a lowercase. You know. Awesome. Yeah. Catherine. I'm on Twitter at KJ Lagrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. Lale. And I'm on Twitter at Lale Arikoglu. And L A L E A R I K O G L U. <laughs> okay, Sorry. Brad. Sorry. Just trying to get in my. <laughs> Sorry. Gotta... I was trying to help it's the good. listeners. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you, you have to tell them exactly what to type in. And I'm at Brad Rick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks to all of you guys for coming and talking today. Bye.